Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. This is Stuart England, The Civil Wars, Episode 2.26, The New Model Army. Last time, we left Parliament in a deadlock at Christmas, 1644. The House of Commons had passed the Self-Denying Ordinance, a piece of legislation that would purge the officer corps of all members of the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Although on the surface this was a non-partisan effort to solve the problems that had developed within Parliament's armies, Oliver Cromwell and the Independents had thrown their full support behind the idea. But when the self-denying ordinance got to the House of Lords, its momentum ground to a halt. A mixture of Presbyterian power in the upper house and wariness over fighting a war without aristocratic leadership held up debate. I ended last episode by explaining why the Lords were hesitant to pass the self-denying ordinance. But there was an important aspect of the stalemate that I left out. In a sense, the Earls of Essex and Manchester were just buying time with their delays. The Presbyterians were playing defense on the self-denying ordinance because they were playing offense elsewhere, outside of Westminster. That winter, the Presbyterians were focused on peace negotiations with the king. Over the course of 1644, both the English Presbyterians and the Scots had grown wary of Oliver Cromwell. They suspected his war aims, specifically religious toleration for independent sects, were incompatible with the stated goals of the Solemn Oath and Covenant that bound England and Scotland together. Cromwell's activities in Parliament that winter only served to heighten their anxiety. The best way to stop Cromwell's plans, of which they were sure the self-denying ordinance was just the first step, would be to render the legislation moot. If Parliament had a provisional peace treaty to debate, all discussion of army reform would be sidelined. The impetus for talks had come from the Scots back in November, around the same time that Cromwell and Manchester were throwing their hissy fits in Parliament. In effect, the Scots determined that they had a better chance of securing their coveted Presbyterian church through a negotiated peace with the king now, rather than continuing the war and seeing Cromwell's influence grow. The Scots were soon joined by parliamentary delegates, and by December, informal talks at Oxford had produced an outline of what peace terms might look like. First, Charles had to swear the solemn oath and covenant, tying himself personally to the defense of a Presbyterian church in both England and Scotland. The Scots, in particular, saw this as the key condition of any peace. Not only would it bind Charles to a Presbyterian church, but it would also bind England and Scotland together into a kind of equal partnership. This, after all, had always been the Covenanters' endgame, a sort of confederation with England that offered them permanent religious security. The second condition was parliamentary control over the kingdom's militias after the war. Whether this was to be permanent, or only for a set cooling-off period, was open for debate. Third, Charles would have to renounce his truce with the Irish rebels, and allow the English and Scottish parliaments to jointly run the war in Ireland. 
Finally, Parliament would present the king with a list of royalists, who would be excluded from a blanket pardon that forgave all treasons during the war. These were stiff terms for Charles, and ones he was never likely to accept, but they were the opening move in a real attempt to arrive at a settlement. Aside from Charles's reaction to these terms, which we'll get to in a moment, two things are worth noting right away. First, these terms made no mention of religious liberty. Charles would renounce bishops forever, but a national Presbyterian church would remain. In other words, the independents were being shut out of the process. Secondly, the terms implied that the wartime alliance between England and Scotland would persist in peacetime. Continued cooperation between England and Scotland in the Irish War and the management of religious affairs suggested some kind of institutional union between the two kingdoms. Likely, the Scots imagined a partnership between the two parliaments of the kingdoms, both as a way of keeping the king in check, but also as a way of keeping an overpowerful England in check. Ultimately, progress depended on the king's willingness to make concessions, and by December, Charles was offering hints that he might be willing to bend. He even implied that the Parliament at Westminster might be the legitimate Parliament of the Kingdom after all, perhaps opening the door to an agreement. In January 1645, delegates from the King, Parliament, and Scotland gathered at Uxbridge, about 20 miles west of London on the road to Oxford. Denzel Holes, who was a member of the peace delegation, had proposed that the talks take place in London, with Charles himself taking part. But this was too provocative for Parliament to approve. The presence of the king in London may well have sparked popular support for the peace party, which is, no doubt, why Holes suggested it. Instead, Uxbridge acted as a neutral location for the talks to take place. But while Charles was willing to talk, it was not at all clear that he was doing so in good faith. The king dispatched his delegates to Uxbridge with some pretty stringent red lines. He secretly instructed them that he would not accept the removal of bishops from the church, he would not relinquish his control of the armed forces, and he would not allow any of his subjects to be punished for their loyalty to him. In other words, Charles was rejecting all of Parliament's demands before the talks even started. There's no indication that Charles ever took the Uxbridge talks seriously. He seems to have primarily seen them as an opportunity to further exacerbate the divisions within Parliament. By stringing the Presbyterian Peace Coalition along, he hoped to speed up the collapse of parliamentary unity. It's worth pausing here and reflecting on why Charles chose this obstinate course. He could see, just as well as Parliament, that his military position was precarious. Sure, he had won all the battles after Marston Moor, but the Royalists were badly outnumbered and entirely shut out of the North. Given the current circumstances, more fighting was likely to weaken the king's negotiating position, rather than strengthen it. Part of the reason for Charles's stubbornness was principle. At his coronation, he had sworn an oath to protect the English church, and in Charles's mind, that meant protecting bishops. This was not a responsibility he took lightly. Presbyterianism was out of the question. Thomas Wentworth's execution also weighed on his mind. The thought of throwing some of his most loyal subjects to the wolves in order to secure peace, as Parliament was demanding, was too much to bear. At times, Charles seems to have thought that the Civil War itself was God's way of punishing him for betraying Wentworth. He was not willing to do something like that again. But Charles was being pragmatic, too. He recognized that while the current military situation was not favorable, he had reason to hope that he could improve his position. We'll get into the details in future episodes, but Charles had planted seeds in several places that might soon bear fruit. 
That winter, he dispatched a new envoy to the Irish rebels, offering sweeping new concessions in exchange for help in England. Meanwhile, in Scotland, the Earl of Montrose had started a royalist insurrection in the Highlands that might just pull the Scots out of England altogether. And finally, Henrietta Maria had escaped to Paris, where she was negotiating a possible French intervention. If Charles could buy time for these plans to come to fruition, he might erase Parliament's edge on the battlefield. Making the Presbyterians and Scots believe a peace was possible would keep them bickering with the independents. So long as they argued over the reorganization of their armies, they wouldn't be marching on Oxford. The Uxbridge talks dragged on through the first three weeks of February and achieved nothing. At least, they did not achieve any progress towards a peace settlement. This failure had some significant consequences. First, it served to clarify the confused world of factions at Charles's court. You may recall that the key players in the royalist leadership divided into factions based on ideology and personality. There was the Queen, with her hardline, uncompromising approach. There was Prince Rupert, who advocated military solutions to all problems. There was Edward Hyde, who favoured a constitutional settlement with Parliament. And there was Secretary of State George Digby, who was up for any harebrained scheme that offered a quick fix. Henrietta Maria had fled into exile in the summer of 1644, somewhat limiting her influence at court. Meanwhile, Edward Hyde was the primary advocate of the Uxbridge talks, the failure of which severely undermined his standing with the king. In the aftermath of the failed negotiations, Hyde was sent to Bristol. Officially, his job was to help the Prince of Wales, the future King Charles II, govern the royalist possessions in the West. But unofficially, this was a kind of exile from the centre of power. Hyde's attempts to bring the war to a peaceful resolution, first with the Oxford Parliament and then with the Uxbridge talks, had failed. Charles no longer felt inclined to follow his advice. The upshot of all this was that George Digby and Prince Rupert were the two remaining voices at the king's ear. You may remember that infighting between these two contributed to the disaster at Marston Moor. It didn't bode well for the royalist cause that they were the last men left standing in the cutthroat world of royalist politics. Though Digby felt confident that he could outmaneuver the soldier prince in the world of backroom politics. The second significant outcome of the Uxbridge Conference came on the parliamentary side. The main talks were held out in the open, with both Presbyterian and independent delegates reporting back to Parliament on progress. Of course, since there was no progress, there wasn't really that much to report. But other talks were going on behind the scenes. Denzel Holes in particular met in private with royalist delegates on several occasions. What precisely Holes discussed in these meetings no one knew, though everyone remembered the spring and summer of 1643 when the first incarnation of Holes's peace party had been discredited by its association with a series of royalist coup attempts. For now, these secret meetings merely raised eyebrows. It would take a few months, and the testimony of a royalist defector, to turn them into a full-blown scandal. More on that in the future. I said earlier that both the Presbyterians and the Independents had plans to break the deadlock over the self-denying ordinance. The Presbyterian plan to upstage the ordinance with news of a peace settlement died at Uxbridge. So how were the Independents faring with their plan to break the deadlock? Basically, the Independents hoped to build support for the self-denying ordinance by outlining a wider program of army reform that it would initiate. This approach had a real chance of success. There was widespread support for a thorough reform of Parliament's armies, 
and if the independents could introduce a popular reform package that included the self-denying ordinance, it would be difficult for the Presbyterians to continue their obstruction in the House of Lords. In fact, the Committee of Both Kingdoms had recognized the need for army reform almost immediately after disaster befell the Earl of Essex at Laswithiel. Parliament had the numbers, but their armies suffered from a lack of coordination, irregular supply, and unreliable troops. These flaws were all on display in the second half of 1644. William Waller's army of southern militiamen had proved that they were only really useful in and around London. Meanwhile, Charles, with his single royalist army, continually outmaneuvered the poorly coordinated armies of Waller, Essex, and Manchester. The answer was what became known as the New Model Army, a single army that was not tied to any one region of the kingdom. The New Model Army would also have supremacy over every other force in the parliamentary war effort. In other words, its commander would take precedence over all other commanders, an answer only to Westminster. The New Model Army would also have top priority on all money, resources, and soldiers. No longer would Parliament dole out provisions piecemeal to various units across England. The need for these reforms was apparent no matter what faction you belonged to. Whether you wanted to win the war outright or force the king to the negotiating table, an army capable of besting the royalists in the field was absolutely necessary. The devil was, of course, in the details. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Through the winter, the plans for this great army reform package were being drawn up under the supervision of the bipartisan Committee of Both Kingdoms. But much of the work was done by William Waller and Oliver Cromwell, both proponents of a war of complete victory over the king. By the beginning of January, the Earl of Essex was sufficiently alarmed by their work to raise questions in the House of Lords. Reform was necessary, Essex conceded, but the plans he had seen did not seem to include the Scots at all. Was this yet another attempt by Oliver Cromwell and the Independents to advance their own interests? The House of Commons ignored these concerns and passed the new model army ordinance on the 9th of January. It called for an army of roughly 21,000 men. About half of these men would be drawn from the best parts of the existing armies of Essex, Waller, and Manchester's Eastern Association. The other half would be raised in a recruiting drive. The money to raise this army, and to keep it well-provisioned, would come from a new monthly assessment of £45,000, drawn from the 17 counties currently controlled by Parliament, though the bulk of the money would come from London and the wealthy Eastern Association counties. So far, this was welcome news to all parliamentarians, Presbyterian and Independent alike. The problems arose when the subject came around to picking officers for this new army. This is where the self-denying ordinance came in. Until the status of the military officers sitting in Parliament was resolved, the new model army officer corps couldn't be appointed. In effect, the officer selection process for the new model army opened up the back door to the self-denying ordinance. The Commons produced a list of officers that was in compliance with the self-denying ordinance, in other words, men who were not members of the Commons or Lords. If the Presbyterian-controlled Lords accepted the offer list, it would be a tacit acceptance of the self-denying ordinance. But if they refused, they would be holding up a popular and much-needed army reform. 
The Presbyterians hoped to sidestep this pressure by putting forward the Earl of Essex as the commander of the new model army. He had the experience and could smoothly transition from being the captain general to the overall general of this new national army. Even better, the selection of Essex would, in effect, exempt him from the self-denying ordinance. Surely an exception could be made for the great war hero. But the commons instead turned to another war hero, Thomas Fairfax, the 32-year-old cavalry officer who had proven his courage in the north. Fairfax, unlike his father, did not have a seat in the House of Commons, so his appointment would be in keeping with the self-denying ordinance. He also had a long list of heroic deeds celebrated in the London press. They didn't call him the Rider of the White Horse for nothing. Better yet, Fairfax was respected on both sides of the Presbyterian-Independent divide. His personal religious beliefs leaned Presbyterian, but Fairfax was studiously apolitical. Despite personal religious differences, he had worked well with Oliver Cromwell. In fact, although Cromwell got more of the credit, the pair had worked together to win the great victory at Marston Moor. In other words, Fairfax was a strong choice from a military standpoint, he was one of the best officers Parliament had, and he was also a strong choice from a political standpoint. Cromwell trusted him to pursue total victory in the field, and the Presbyterians would be hard-pressed to oppose a man untainted by religious radicalism. Fairfax was also backed by an influential group of northern MPs and lords that acted as a kind of third-party faction. We'll get into these guys in more detail in the future, but they were getting more and more concerned about the Scottish army roaming the north of England. Their property, and the property of their neighbours, was under foreign occupation. Selecting a Yorkshireman like Thomas Fairfax to lead the new model army helped bind these northern MPs to the anti-Scottish Independent Party. In mid-February, the House of Commons approved the appointment of Fairfax as the commander of the new model army. Fairfax won the vote by a count of 101 to 69. Significantly, the tellers, the men who counted up the votes, were Oliver Cromwell for the pro-Fairfaxes and Denzel Holt for the anti-Fairfaxes. The pressure was now on the Presbyterian party in the Lords, and it showed. A few days later, the Lords approved the new model army legislation, including the appointment of Thomas Fairfax as commander. But deciding on an officer list for Fairfax's new army took another month of haggling. The House of Commons wanted to give Fairfax the authority to choose his own officers. This was likely an indication that, although Fairfax did not have a political agenda, independents like Cromwell could trust him to select officers that would focus single-mindedly on winning the war. The House of Lords, on the other hand, wanted the officer list to be collaborative, drafted in consultation with both Houses of Parliament. Furthermore, the Lords demanded that all officers in the New Model Army swear the solemn oath and covenant before taking up their commission. This was clearly intended as a safeguard against the New Model Army becoming a hotbed of anti-Scottish sentiment, or a political instrument that the independents could wield. The stalemate lasted into mid-March, dangerously close to the opening of the spring campaigning season. The House of Commons even took the provocative measure of starving Parliament's existing armies of funding until the new model army was approved. Eventually, the two houses reached a compromise. Fairfax would draw up a list of officers, and Parliament would be given the right of refusal to any name it deemed offensive. On the solemn oath and covenant, the two houses agreed that no officer currently serving in the military would be required to swear new oaths, but all new officers would have to take the covenant. On the 24th of March, the final deal was struck. Thomas Fairfax had his army, and his commission, which, unlike the Earl of Essex's at the beginning of the war, made no mention of protecting the king. 
The following week, the deadlock over the self-denying ordinance finally broke. The Earl of Essex resigned his commission on the 2nd of April, the day before the self-denying ordinance finally passed. Spared the indignity of being removed from his position, Essex explained that he had always wanted to retire since his great victory at Gloucester in 1643, but his country had needed him. Now he could step down, confident that young Fairfax would take England the rest of the way. No one bought this. The Earl of Manchester also gave up his position in the military. So too did other successful commanders in the House of Commons, like William Waller and Ferdinando Fairfax, Thomas's father. Waller had become disillusioned and complained of being slighted and disesteemed, though he retained his position on the Committee of Both Kingdoms, overseeing the war in a political capacity. The Earl of Warwick resigned as commander of Parliament's navy, though he took charge of a parliamentary committee overseeing navy affairs. The shake-up affected more than just the officers in Parliament. Scots or foreigners of any kind were noticeably absent from Fairfax's officer list. The Presbyterian party in the Lords had tried to add some Scots to the list, but Fairfax and the Commons flatly refused. This was to be a distinctly English army. As many as 300 Scottish officers in parliamentary armies resigned their commissions in disgust and joined Alexander Leslie's Covenanter army. Of course, the one MP in the army I haven't mentioned was perhaps the most important, Oliver Cromwell. By the 3rd of April, when the self-denying ordinance was passed, Cromwell was not at Westminster but with his men in the field. The spring fighting had already started. As a result, Cromwell took advantage of a clause in the self-denying ordinance that gave a 40-day grace period for MPs to resign their army commissions. Parliament had the ability to extend this exemption period for commanders in the field, raising the possibility that Cromwell might delay his resignation even further. Cynical Presbyterians suspected that something more nefarious was afoot, One of the top positions in Thomas Fairfax's new model army was, as yet, unfilled. In fact, the top three positions had been specifically mentioned in the statute. As we've seen, Fairfax was named overall commander. Commander of the infantry went to Philip Skippen, the man who had led Essex's army at Luswithiel after their general abandoned them. But the commander of the cavalry and Fairfax's second-in-command was left blank. Fairfax's subsequent list of officers that he had submitted to Parliament had not included a name for that position either. You can perhaps see where these cynical Presbyterians were going with this. Oliver Cromwell, the man who had originally promoted the idea of the self-denying ordinance, was trying to sneak his way in through the back door. But before we get to Oliver Cromwell's role in the new model army, it's worth pausing and explaining what made this new army so special. Over the next 15 years, it would become a permanent institution in English political life, as influential, and often more influential, than either Parliament or the Crown. So what made the new model army different than the armies that had been fighting in the Civil War so far? The central reform underpinning the new model army's success came in supply, both in terms of money for the soldiers and the provision of war material. I mentioned earlier that the funds for the New Model Army came from a national monthly assessment of £45,000. Before the New Model Army, such assessments had largely gone to regional armies, either at the county level or through groups of counties gathered into associations. The result was quite often a confusion of competing military units, as garrisons, county commanders, and nearby armies bickered over resources. But now, the New Model Army got first dibs on all assessment money. The City of London provided an £80,000 loan to provide immediate wages while the assessments gathered speed. Once the taxation apparatus was in place, 
a massive wagon train of silver set out from London every month in search of the army. The most direct beneficiaries of all this cash were the soldiers themselves. They instantly became the best paid, and the most regularly paid, soldiers in the war. Just as important were the indirect beneficiaries of this regular pay, the civilians the new model army encountered. Most armies in the Civil War lived off the land, meaning they requisitioned the food and supplies they needed from locals. The new model army did the same, but its soldiers actually had the cash to pay for what they took. This made the new model army very popular among the men and women of England who had spent the past two and a half years at the mercy of hungry soldiers. As we'll see in future episodes, the civilian population of the kingdom had reached the limit of their endurance, and the armies of both sides had become objects of hatred. Wherever armies went, they inspired civilian unrest, and even violence. The new model army's ability to win the hearts and minds of local populations with real coin was perhaps its greatest asset. Most food could be purchased locally, wherever the army marched. But supplies like clothes, weapons, and equipment were mostly produced in London. Again, the name of the game for the new model army was centralization. A national contracting system worked alongside the army. Guilds, or individual producers, accepted contracts from the central government, then were encouraged to fill them quickly, thanks to prompt payment. As an example, on the 31st of March, the Cutler's Company accepted a contract to produce 9,200 swords for the new model army. Within 16 days, the contract had been filled, and the company paid. This kind of bulk production and timely payment was simply unheard of. In fact, the economies of scale that the bulk orders provided led the central government to clothe the soldiers too, something the counties were initially expected to do at the point of recruitment. The county committees had found it too expensive to clothe soldiers, and so uniforms were handled by the central government. As a result, the new model army established the first real standardized uniforms for English soldiers, a red coat with blue facing, blue being the Fairfax family color, and gray breeches. Of course, by highlighting the importance of money and provisions, I don't mean to denigrate the importance of the men doing the actual fighting in the new model army. Regular pay and a fancy red coat were nice, but these guys still had plenty of fighting to do. Thomas Fairfax built his army out of men from the three armies that had fought the king in the fall of 1644. In effect, these armies, the ones commanded by Essex, Waller, and Manchester, were being dismantled, and their constituent parts reshaped into the new model army. The officer corps consisted almost entirely of veterans from these units. Most of the rank and file in the new model army also came from these three parliamentary armies. Virtually all of the 7,000 cavalry under Fairfax's command were simply reassigned veterans. In fact, the competition was so stiff that some cavalry officers resigned their commissions and signed up as mere troopers in the new model army. It's no surprise, then, that cavalry was the army's great strength. Fighting on horseback brought in the most pay, provided the most glory, and, quite frankly, won battles. But while filling the ranks of the cavalry was easy, Fairfax had a much more difficult time getting enough foot soldiers. Dismantling the old armies produced around 7,000 infantry, leaving the army around 7,000 short of its intended strength. If Fairfax wanted to get his army in the field that spring, he had some recruiting to do. The commitment to more regular pay acted as a draw, but often that just meant cannibalizing men who deserted local parliamentary forces. To completely fill the ranks, Parliament recognized early on that it would have to use the coercive powers of the state. While the new model army legislation was passing through Parliament, Westminster also produced an impressment bill. This gave each county a quota of men to raise in the next few weeks. The county committees were authorized to force men into service against their will, at least some men. 
Anyone possessing more than five pounds worth of goods, or owning land valued at more than three pounds a year, was exempt. Some were also exempted on the basis of profession, or social class. Students and lawyers were safe from impressment, as were the sons of gentlemen. Mariners who might be needed in the navy were similarly protected. County officials placed their own informal limitations on recruitment too. As we saw when Charles tried to mobilize for the bishops' wars, local officials were reluctant to send any useful men off to war. As a result, half of the new model army's infantry were poor, unwanted men. And quite frankly, the feeling was mutual. Few of them wanted any part of this new army. For the remainder of the war, desertion would be a persistent problem within the infantry. Most of these recruits had no fixed address, little standing in their communities, and no ideological attachment to Parliament's cause. In other words, desertion was easy to accomplish and difficult to punish. In its first 12 months, the new army had to impress around 14,000 men to fill those 7,000 vacancies. Men were leaving as quickly as they arrived. In fact, some left before they arrived. The bulk of the conscription drive took place in London and the East. Parliament demanded 2,500 men from the city, and 1,000 each from Essex, Kent, Norfolk, and Suffolk. Once raised, these men were to walk to Reading, where Fairfax was assembling his army. Many set out, but never showed up. In order to ensure compliance, county committees started sending escorts to make sure the men actually honored their duty. Over the next year, the new model army was only able to keep its numbers up by successive recruitment drives, siphoning off soldiers from other parliamentary armies, and defections from royalist armies. But despite these problems, Thomas Fairfax was able to muster his army in full force at Reading in the spring of 1645. Or sort of the full force. Fairfax personally led around 14,000 men. A further 7,000 veterans had technically been reassigned to the New Model Army, but were already in the field under Oliver Cromwell. Which leaves one final question about the New Model Army. I'm going to let the cat out of the bag a little bit and reveal that Oliver Cromwell did in fact get that vacant job of second-in-command in the New Model Army. The historical association between Cromwell and the army is strong, and if you know one thing about either Oliver Cromwell or the New Model Army, it's probably that they partnered to become an unstoppable political force in the coming years. But it's important to note that in its initial stages, the New Model Army was not a political institution. Thomas Fairfax was about as apolitical as a general in a civil war can be, and was focused solely on winning that war. The rank and file, as well as the officer corps, largely followed their general's lead. The politicization and radicalization of the army would take place later. Neither was the army at this point closely aligned with the independent churches. Part of the reason that the army reform had passed through Parliament was that both independents and Presbyterians saw the necessity. Despite Cromwell's presence, this was a bipartisan affair. Religious fervor was very much present in the army from the beginning, but that was true of the parliamentary cause more generally. There's not much evidence that independent chaplains outweighed their Presbyterian counterparts in army sermons. Similarly, much is often made of the social status of the new army's officer corps. The absence of the aristocracy in any MPs, aside from Cromwell, suggests that this was a meritocracy, where yeoman farmers and urban professionals were able to rise through the ranks. But in fact, the officer corps retained its gentry identity. The army's commander, Thomas Fairfax, whose father was one of the great gentlemen of Yorkshire, was roughly representative. At this point, you're probably thinking, well, this all sounds pretty dull. Was there anything new or different about the new model army? The best answer to that is perhaps the army's distinctive Englishness. 
As I mentioned earlier, the Continental officers that had been a part of Parliamentary Army since the outset of the war had been almost entirely purged over the winter. The same went for the hundreds of Scots that had been serving as officers in Parliamentary Armies. The new model army was almost exclusively an English affair. And this went beyond the mere absence of any non-English soldiers. As we'll see next episode, the new model army was a self-conscious escalation in the ethnic nature of the war. The king was using outsiders like the Irish and Welsh to wage a war on England, and the deprivations that Essex's infantry had suffered at the hands of the Cornish on their long march home were added to the list of crimes against the English people. Just as importantly, the new model army's Englishness had political implications at Westminster, too. This was an unmistakable message to Parliament's Scottish allies. England was fighting for England. The dream of an ever-closer union between England and Scotland was looking like it would remain just that, a dream. The new model army, as an expression of English nationalism, was perhaps Oliver Cromwell's signal victory in the winter of 1644-1645. The army did not really indicate a definitive stand on religion or ideology, but Cromwell had managed to outmaneuver his rivals by appealing to English patriotism. In doing so, he severely weakened the Presbyterian faction, driving a wedge between Parliament and its Scottish ally. Of course, before the new model army could have a political impact at Westminster, it would need to actually win the war. Fairfax wasn't able to muster his army until the beginning of May, which meant that for all of April, Oliver Cromwell was managing things in the field by himself. Although he didn't fight any major battles, he succeeded in preventing the king at Oxford from linking up with his forces in the West. Cromwell's work was important because Parliament was momentarily vulnerable as it reorganized its armies. Parliament was gambling that Fairfax could get his men into the field before the Royalists took advantage. On the 13th of May, the 40-day grace period in the self-denying ordinance ran out. Legally speaking, Cromwell had to resign his commission. But Parliament deemed his services invaluable. Fairfax was now on the march, but until the new model army could be tested in battle, it would be foolish to lose a commander as accomplished as Cromwell. Parliament voted to give Cromwell 40 more days before handing in his resignation. Essex and the Presbyterians complained that this was what Cromwell had always intended, but the demands of military necessity overpowered their protests. Next time, we'll follow the new model army into battle and see if Oliver Cromwell can score a victory great enough to end any talk of him resigning from the army. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.